The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to a Christmas Day edition of the Veritas Show, where we bring a disclosure, one guest at a time. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. First of all, I want to wish all of you who may be celebrating today, Merry Christmas. You may have heard that I wanted to take the last two weeks of the year off. And as you know, I promise 48 shows. In case of emergency, or if I have to take some time off, I like to give myself that cushion. However, I could not do that. And even today, I'm coming to you as usual. Many of you may be listening to this show a few days after the holidays, since I know many are spending time with loved ones. But I also know there are some of you who are spending this time by yourselves. And I wanted to be here for you to let you know that while you are listening to Veritas, you have a friend, a brother, a home here at Veritas. You are never alone. Tonight's special guest is someone who came into the Veritas radar in a very peculiar way. I'm not even going to tell you how it happened. I'll let the interview tell you. But I now can tell you her name, Crystal Clark. She is the author of the book, Who Are We Really 101? The Return of the Shaman. Crystal will be with us shortly. 
And even though the holidays are coming to an end, it is never too late to give the gift of truth. Truth certificates are available for three, six months, or one year. Give a gift that won't be put away forever. Make a difference in someone's life. Speaking of never being alone, this would be a great time to become a Veritas member. Go to our website, veritasshow.com, click on the subscribe button, and you will receive immediate access to all our past shows, 56 of them to date, present and future shows. You also get access to the Manticore Forum, where you can interact with people from all over the world, and the Veritas chat room, where we conduct monthly chats in which you are the ones participating with some of our guests in what we call Veritas Live. All of this for $5.32 per month, or 17 cents per day. Where else can you get so much for so little? If you need to get in touch with me, send me an email to mail, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com. And today, being that it is a holiday in many places around the world, I will go directly to the interview. So get ready. How will the powers that be maintain control if we remember who we are and what we came here to do and use knowledge of the sacred science to do it? Is this what the powers that be have been so afraid of? And is the current economic depression another attempt to prevent a spiritual awakening that would completely rob them of their power? Tonight, we'll be discussing ancient texts, the unified field theory, advanced technologies, secret societies, the shadow world, UFOs and reincarnation, Nibiru and stargates, the lie inserted into our past, Hitler and the Vril, harmonic codes, the quantum field, Atlantis, 2012, the pyramids, hidden knowledge, DNA and the solar system, climate change, and much more. If you want to believe, stop this audio now. If you want to end the year knowing more than you did, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Most of the great music you hear right here on The Veritas Show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at Jamendo.com. This is a Karai Sitching, and you are listening to a wonderful radio interview conducted by Mel. Crystal Clark was born in the United States in 1972 into a family that gave her a special privilege and freedom, a freedom they never had growing up, the freedom to explore life's greater mysteries. 
Well, they baited her young imagination with stories of ancient civilizations and even extraterrestrial interaction and encouraged her to look deeper at these things in life. The material world was baiting her imagination with an entirely different message at the same time. Your value as a human being is entirely dependent on your material wealth. Like most, she chose the material path until she had an unusual encounter in the year 2000 that changed her life forever. A series of events took place after this encounter that literally ejected her from the corporate money-driven paradigm and thrust her into the world of the unknown. A world that revealed a very ancient sacred science to her. One that has been hidden from the public for thousands of years by both world governments and religions. Her journey has her convinced that giving knowledge of this sacred science back to the masses is the only way our civilization will avoid another cataclysmic self-destruction episode. Is she right? In her book, Who Are We Really? 101, The Return of the Shaman, she not only chronicles her journey into the unknown for us, but asks us to take the same journey as well. And she's here on The Veritas Show to explain why this is so important and why we may be running out of time to do so. Even so, the message she delivers goes beyond the doom and gloom by delivering a new kind of hope. And from one desert to another, I would like to introduce Crystal Clark. Hello, Crystal, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Crystal, you're one of those mysterious guests that we don't announce. And and when people listen to the show, they'll understand why. But I want you to start, first of all, before you tell us who you are and, and, and tell us more about yourself, I want you to tell the audience how I was able to get in touch with you. I think it's a, it's a great story. If you want, I can, I can tell my part, but why don't you tell your part first? How, how did you get in touch with me? Well, I, um, I went on this really fantastic journey, and I wrote a book. And the universe basically said to me, you have to print out a certain number of copies of this book and send them out. And I was under the impression that I was supposed to do that to protect the work, not necessarily myself, but the work itself before I went public. And uh, so I was trying to figure out who, who I'm supposed to send all of these copies to. And I came across an interview that you had done on YouTube with another individual. And I thought, you know, this, this guy is, is one of the people who should receive a copy of it. So I sent out all the copies. And, um, and then I thought, okay, now I'm ready. I can, I can start... Um, you know, selling the book online, and I can get it out to the public. But then the universe gave me another uh, kind of a curveball and said, well, um, yeah, it was important for you to get these copies out, but you can't move one toe until one of these people come forward and offer to help you. And the universe also said, and by the way, none of them are really going to want to for personal reasons. And so, um, you know, that was kind of a blow. You know, you spend years and years working on a project and you think you're finally at a place where you can get it out and uh, and then you you get an, a message like that so um, I really just had to wait and uh, you were the one who came forward and I'm very grateful for it well sometimes things happen for a reason we have a mission and, and it's incredible how some of us converge with each other let me tell you folks how it happened for me I get books from people who, who would like to be on the show, which is flattering for me because that means that people are finding 
that, that this show is a portal to the world. So I have a stack of books in my studio. And as you all know, I've, I've conveyed this to you that I, with the present paradigm I live in, I don't have the time to, to really read a lot. But I do occasionally open the books, read a little bit, and then I, I uh, get in touch with some of these uh, prospective guests. But on this mountain of book, there was this, this book that had a title that just struck me. The title was, Who Are We Really? 101, The Return of the Shaman. So I saw that title and I said, wait a minute, this is one of the foundations of the Veritas show. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? So that question immediately made me just grab that book. I opened it. I could not put it down. Even though my time is limited, I could not put that down. I was going to bed late at night and I decided I need to talk to the author. We spoke for, for a long period of time a few weeks ago and I said, Crystal, I have to have you on the show. And that's when okay. she explained her story to me. And this is, folks, how we converged. And I really have to have good reasons to have people on the show. Now I, I want to talk to them. I want to see who they are, etc. And her book just fascinated me. But aside from me having read your bio, Crystal, I'm very interested, and I'm sure the audience will too. What happened in your early life and then... The year 2000 was a, a big transition for you. Why don't you take it from there? All right, yeah. It was a huge transition. You know, I was really fortunate as a child because I had parents who themselves were raised in very, very controlling environments. For my father, it was being raised in a very strict Catholic household. Um, and, you know, his family were college-educated. They were wealthy and on my mother's side, her family was, you know, the, the big strong men, and they were laborers. And in her family, the controlling issue was the father. And so they both kind of rebelled, and they wanted their own children to have complete uh, creative freedom. You know, my father made sure we understood, yeah, religion is out there, but, you know, you can, when you're older, decide for yourself if that's something that you want to get involved with. And for and with my mother, it was really the complete opposite because she had she had come from a world of really high strangeness. In fact, years and years and years ago, George Knapp did a story on a ranch out here in Las Vegas that was having cattle mutilations, and that was actually a ranch that uh, my mother's cousin, who she grew up with, owned. So I was always taught very young as a child that there are great mysteries out there. People aren't talking about them, but they're important, and they always, you know, encouraged me to, um, you know, spend spend the time learning about these things because they're important. And uh, the problem was, by the time I was about nine, because I came from a, a somewhat poor family, well, at home I was being taught by these wonderful people that there's all these really great mysteries out there and to pay attention. The real world was teaching me that... Uh, my value as a human being was based on my financial worth. You know, what I wore, the kind of clothes I had, the kind of car my parents drove. And um, unfortunately, I, I chose that path, as most of us have. You know, we, we become very materialistic, and, and we believe that that's all that matters. And so I chose that path, and then uh, in the year 2000, I had a, a very odd uh, meeting and uh, I, I liked I like to liken it to uh, a, a turnip falling off the truck because yeah even though I was 
really chasing the American dream and the almighty dollar. In my spare time, I was still reading, you know, books about ancient civilizations and, you know, Nostradamus prophecies and, you know, alien books. You know, I've got, uh, my mother gave me a copy of Communion when I was like 15. So, but always, always the money came first. So I really kind of just fell off the turnip truck into this in a way. And what happened was uh, I was on this truck with all the other turnips, and you know, because you were there once too, you know, the the, the rat race in the corporate world. And uh, one day this, this turnip that I work with came to me and said, you know, I can do things the other turnips can't do. And I said, really? And And she was a very, very psychic individual. And she said, yeah. She said, but you know, there's a turnip on the truck who's better than I am. We should go see her. And uh, I didn't really want to go because at the time I was working 80 hours a week and I was on call 24 hours. And I had one day off a week and I had taken an extra day off to spend with my family. And that was the day she wanted me to go. And I really didn't want to do it. And she talked me into it. So uh, she said, you know, it's a half an hour session. It's only $50. You know, you'll be in and out. So uh, we, we went to, this, to go see this woman. And I was in her office for an hour and a half, and she started to say all kinds of really odd things to me. And I really didn't know how to react at first. Uh, She even actually told me my future over six years in advance. But, of course, at the time, I didn't realize that that's that's what was going on. But two of the most uh, important things this woman said to me was, A, you're not really a turnip, you're a carrot, and B, you're not supposed to be on the truck. And... I thanked her very kindly, and I left. And um, what's really funny about this is that all, you know, we're all really kind of turnips on this truck. And there is a driver and a co-driver. And after I had my meeting, if you could imagine, the, the driver said to the co-driver, well, did she have her meeting? And she said, yeah, yeah. Well, how'd it go? Well, not good. She's still on the truck. And the, and the driver said, well, that's not good. Wh- what do you want to do with her? Well, we're going to have to kick her off the truck. So they pulled the truck over, and they kicked me off, and I tumbled off the truck, and I kind of, you know, tumbled down the road. But I thought, okay, I'm on the road. It's safe. You know, there's a road here. People have been down this road. And that road represents knowledge, book knowledge. You know, everybody writes books about this, that, and the other, and we, we've all read the same books. It's all the same information. And what I didn't know was that when they pulled over and kicked me off the truck, the co-driver snuck off the truck and was following me. So I'm, I'm going down this road, and uh, after a while, the driver of the truck called the co-driver and said, well, how is she doing now? And the co-driver said, well, not good. She won't get off the road. And the driver said, well, there's only one thing we can do. You're going to have to sneak up behind her when she isn't looking, blindfold her, spin her around, and push her out into the desert. And uh, th- that's really what happened. Um, I, uh, you know, I think that for all of us, you know, we all have a very specific purpose that we come here for. And if we get lost and we lose our way, I think that there are events um, or, or people or places or maybe even sounds that are meant to kind of flick that switch on for us. And that's the point where we're supposed to go, oh, I'm supposed to be doing something else. And that meeting was that moment for me, but I didn't, I didn't see it. I didn't understand. And uh, so the universe really just kind of took action. And literally, uh, a series of events took place after I had this meeting with this woman that literally ejected me out of the corporate world. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get back in. 
And so it took me six years of fighting with the universe to let me back in to that material world before I finally just gave up and said, okay, I'm, I'm willing. I get it. I'm going to do it. And so I did it, and I took the journey out into the desert and into the unknown. And um, it, it was hard. It was really hard because, it, you know, when you grow up believing, as so many of us have, that our identity is tied to what we do for a living and how many digits there are on our bank account, when you no longer have that, then you have to look for the real you. And that's what the desert really represents. You know, it's that journey. Really, it's, in, it's into yourself in a way. Um, but it was, so it was hard, but it was incredible because what I learned on that journey was about a very ancient sacred science. And um, that's what you and I are, are here to talk about today. And it's so strange, folks, that even before I called uh, uh, Crystal to talk, I, I felt a connection reading the book because there were some similarities reading the book with, with things that happened in my life. And then after we spoke, we, we talked about our backgrounds and the fact that we both come from very conservative Catholic families. We found somebody, I call it the, the witch in Mexico. She was not a witch. She just looked like one. But she told me also things about my past and my future that materialized immediately after I left the country and how she said that I was going to end up in the desert fulfilling my mission, which was, right now, I can understand this, that it was informing the world. And, you know, there, here we are. We have Crystal, who, have a similar, who has a similar story. But I have had people on the show talk about ancient knowledge and the fact that that ancient knowledge is hidden from the population. And the question is why? So what brought you to the conclusion that the sacred science, and I want you to define also, first of all, what sacred science is and how you discovered it to be ancient. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, the sacred science is, um, it, it's a simple concept, but it's actually really uh, difficult to explain fully. So we can kind of move into that definition through the interview. But um, the reason I came to know that it was ancient is because I, after I realized what it was, I knew what it was called in antiquity. And that's really a funny thing because um, when I had that meeting with that woman, uh, when she said to me, you're not really a turnip, you're a carrot, what she really said to me was, you're not supposed to be doing what you're doing. You're supposed to be a writer and a healer. And I thought she was crazy. So when I actually sat down to write a book, I sat down to write a book that had, actually has nothing to do with the book I actually wrote, which is you know, kind of ironic. Um, so I didn't know the sacred science when I first started writing the book. Um, and the truth is, is that because I didn't know, I didn't understand, I had come across references to it in tons and tons and tons of books that I had, and, but I couldn't see it for what it was. Um, I was using the term sacred science because I understood that in the past, science and religion were not separate teachings. It, it wasn't the way it is now. Um, and then when I really understood what the sacred science was, uh, then I realized what it was called in antiquity, and it was called the one law or the law of one. And, and the reason that I never put two and two together is because there, whenever you see the word law, there's instantly that religious stigma that goes with that word. And so every time I would, I would read an ancient text and I would see that word, I would think, okay, we're talking about religion, and I would just blow past it. And so I, I just, I skipped it every time. 
Um, but, but once I realized what the sacred science really was, I realized that that was the ancient name for it. And then I went back through all the books that I had uh, that had referred to it, and there were, there were quite a few of them. You know, of course, you can find the word law something like 200 times in the Bible. And uh, Edgar Cayce, uh, in his um, past life readings that he did with people who were uh, incarnated during the days of Atlantis, he very specifically used that term. Uh, there was a feud that was taking place between the sons of the law of one and the sons of Belial. And what's interesting is that that exact same terminology is also found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and there are tons of esoteric and occult texts that talk about an ancient sacred law. You can find it in the Emerald Tablets of Thoth. And another thing I noticed that I thought was uh, strange is that when you do research on the indigo children, you'll, oft, you'll often find people talking about how they believe that these children are here to teach humanity the law of one. Um, but I have to be honest, understanding it the way I understand it, I have not come across anyone who, who really understands the sacred science for what it is, because, you know, you have people who come forward and say they're indigo children, and it's the spiritual teaching. But anybody who understands it for what it is will recognize right away that the sacred science is also about very advanced technologies with immense power, both creationally and destructionally. So it, it, while it is true that the sacred science can lead to tremendous spiritual growth, anyone who leaves out its technical and scientific applications is either hiding things or they don't fully understand it. And this is also why ancient texts and advanced technologies go hand in hand. And Hitler knew that. You know, he, that's the reason he sought them out. So um, in order to give people back the truth of the past, present, and future, both sides of that sacred science have to be addressed. So the sacred half refers to the soul mind, or what we would consider psychic abilities and spiritual applications. Um, remote viewing would fall into that category. And the science half refers to the, the body mind or the brain, which is, which is completely uh, tied up with science, logic, and reason, and advanced technologies. So y you can't just say, yeah, the one law is about spiritual growth, because that's only part of the equation. The, it really is a technology. We talk about, uh, on this show, a lot about sacred geometry, Maricopa, latitude 19.5, which is a commonality on this planet and, and other planets and even on the sun. Is there a correlation between secret science and sacred geometry? Um, you know, I would say that, th that there is, but I think that we're not looking at it the right way. So if I, would just, if I were to say, yeah, it would kind of be a half-truth. Um, the numbers are what's important. And, of course, geometry is based on numbers. But it really goes back to the numbers. If, if you understand the way the numbers are intertwined with the sacred science, that's the key, really, to understanding a lot of it. Now, why do you think nobody else has rediscovered, and let, let me say the word again, rediscovered this science, or at least having come forward with it publicly if they have? The sacred science is, is a double-edged sword. You know, we, we can use it to... Um, literally eliminate disease, or we can create the most advanced weapons the world has ever known. And historically, what's happened is every civil, civilization that gets their hands on it 
before they're spiritually evolved enough to use it properly, they destroy themselves with it. And so what happens is, at the end of each civilization, they realize, right before this destruction episode happens, what it is that they've done. So they'll, they'll take this science and they'll pass it on to um, pre-select initiates or priests or secret society members, and then it becomes their job to make sure that this knowledge gets passed on to the next civilization. So it was hidden for a good purpose in the beginning, because it's like giving matches to a five-year-old, right? So you kind of have to wait until humanity evolves enough to give it back. But if corruption takes place, meaning it becomes weaponized or religion has become too profitable, both financially and as a means of control, it never gets out at all. And that's kind of where we're at. So um, I think there have been many throughout the ages who have understood it fully. And uh, three of those uh, people are referenced in the book. And in chronological order, the first one would be Moses. And the second one would be Einstein. And uh, the third the third man uh, is uh, he's relatively new, although in terms of timelines, but he actually has passed over, and his name is Professor Edmund Bordeaux Zeke. And, you know, if we start with Moses, um, I know that reply implies religion again, um, but we have to move beyond those filters, because Moses spent a very, very, very long time on that mountain, and he came down with a set of tablets that he broke. So we know that he was given information that he didn't give out, to the rest of humanity, and I think that was a rightful choice, actually. I, I think it was rightful of him to do that, because if he had given it to us, you and I probably wouldn't be here now. We would have had it too soon. So we got, basically what we got is a watered-down version. We got the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting about that is that, of course, Moses was known as the giver of the law, right? So, um, you know, it, it, he made the right choice. It, it, I mean, I agree with that. You should hide it. You know, you just don't give a five-year-old matches. But if we move on to Einstein, you know, it's interesting that he, he more or less denied that he solved the unified field theory. And, you know, if you look back on Einstein's life, he had somewhat of a love-hate relationship uh, with America in particular. You know, he, he loved living in what he originally presumed to be a free country, but in the end, he knew that we would always weaponize anything that he brought forth. And this is something he really hated. And it's interesting. I, what really convinced me uh, that he, he did know the unified field theory is that there's this really great quote that you can find from Einstein. And it says, The intuitive mind is the sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. And, and what really blew me away when I read that is that he, he very specifically addresses the sacred and the science as two separate halves in that quote. So I'm, I'm sure that he knew, and I, I think he, he hid a lot of, of what he understood because he knew that we would again weaponize it, things would go badly, and the cycle would start over. And then we come to uh, Professor uh, Zeke, and uh and he was really an incredible man. He's one of one of the few people that the Vatican has let into their private vaults to translate some of the texts that they've had hidden away. And uh, it was funny because I wanted to, when, when I read his work, 
he talked about Moses and the one law, and I realized that uh, people really had to have access to this work. They, they, it was something they really needed to have access to, and so I wanted to cite part of his work in my book. So I contacted the author, or I'm sorry, the uh, publishing company, and I got a phone call about a month later from his wife. I didn't realize that they, they had been self-publishing, and she told me that he had passed over, and she told me just tons and tons of really beautiful stories about the man, and he was very, very gifted. He was a very spiritual man. He could you know, see auras. He was uh, really, really gifted. And uh, that's actually the only reason I know how to pronounce his last name, because it looks like Zekali, but it's actually Zeke. So she kind of interviewed me, and we talked about what I was working on, and, um, and I, I told her that I had discovered the one law. And I think it's important for people to realize that there are texts out, there are texts out there that talk about this, but they're being hidden away from the public. And, um, you know, his books are, are refer- referenced in the book, and, and um, I think he did understand it. I really do. But I think that uh, he and Einstein were kind of on different sides of the fence because Einstein, although he understood the sacred half of the science, he was a scientific man. And I think with Professor Zeke, it was the reverse. He, he wasn't necessarily a very uh, scientific person, but he was a very spiritual person. So they both kind of presented it in their own special way, but, but I really do believe that they both knew. So, you know, anybody else who knows, if they know they haven't come forward, and I think it's a shame because, truthfully, the moment that we developed the atomic bomb, that was the moment to re-release it back into the public. That, that, that should have been the moment that those who were hiding it said, it's time. And one could say that a knife, for example, you can cut an apple with it or you can kill a person. So it's a duality. But let me just say something about Professor Seikei, which I used to pronounce Seikei until you corrected me. But when I read, when I started reading the book, the first thing that came to mind was a quotation from this professor. And the fact that when I started Veritas, subconsciously, I did it as a way to deprogram myself by interviewing people. And if people are getting deprogrammed with me, well, so be it. But let me read you the quotation that that I read a few uh, uh, shows ago when I end the show. All men receive two kinds of education, that given by others and the one they give themselves. The latter is the more important as it is the exodus from the wrong education of his youth. That is exactly, if you could summarize what you and I have gone through, and I think that we could summarize it in that capsule, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely, because you really have to get off that road. We all know where that road goes. We, we're, we're going down it, and it's, it's not the right path. So, yeah, you, you have to educate yourself. You really do. So what is the real reason why some people, and I, I know there are people out there, I've spoken to some of them, who have uh, discovered or rediscovered some of this, this information, why is it that you don't see that publicly, mainstream, or why are they not coming forward? Um, uh, you know, that would be a very personal choice. Uh, I can only say that, for me personally, um, not having this knowledge is why we are where we are. So for other people who may have discovered it who've not come forward, there's probably really two paradigms at play. And the first would be that they're using it against us. 
as a means of control, which is why they don't want to share it. Or perhaps they know that there are people who are hiding it, and, and they've done an incredible job of it. It's been thousands and thousands of years, and we still don't have it. So it's being guarded really viciously. So maybe they were afraid to come forward. So, I, I mean, I, I personally don't, um, I don't have that fear. Um, I know that it's my purpose to do this. And based on the journey that I took, I, I fully realized that every purpose that we came here with was never meant to touch only our own lives. So if we don't manifest it and we don't show up to work, other people are naturally going to suffer. So I personally came forward because there will be consequences if people don't know, and, and we can see that now because people don't know. So you you came forward because it's the right thing to do, but 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 tell me exactly why what motivated you to come forward, and are you concerned? Because I think there are repercussions for people who talk about this. I've talked to other people who have shared that with me. Are you concerned about those repercussions for for coming forward with it? Well, um, well, first of all, I came forward um, really because it was my karma. And, and people don't really understand the word karma. You know, they believe that it means if you do something bad to someone, something bad will happen to you. And that, that's true. That is a, a one-law concept. But it's, it's kind of a cheap way of teaching you parts of the sacred science without telling you that's what's really going on. But in fact, karma means purpose. So when we fulfill this pur- purpose that we each came here with, we send out these positive ripples in the water that reach others. And, and those ripples are important. It's like they're like dominoes. And so if, if we don't do it, those ripples don't happen, and people naturally suffer. So I came forward because I've, I've seen where this path leads. I, I know what's going to happen if people don't know. If it's not re-released to the public, we are in really, really big trouble, and I don't want to see people suffer any more than they already are. And so for me personally, uh, are there going to be repercussions? I, I think it would be foolish of me to believe that there won't be. And this is something that my family and I have had years to uh, contend with and deal with. I've been very, very honest with my husband and my son that it's not just dangerous for me. It's dangerous for them as well. And I have to tell you that those two individuals are so wonderful because every morning they would get up with a smile and a hug and say, go to work. They never once asked me not to. What made you decide to to write a book like this in, in in a study guide format that it's easy to understand and and basically it's almost an instruction manual that allows us to take the same journey that you took, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, the, the 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 journey that I took, the way the universe took me on this journey, uh, it, it was done in a very specific way for very specific reasons, and I didn't really understand until the end. In occult teachings, there are often references to three levels of experience in our lives. But I personally see it as three steps to personal understanding and spiritual unfoldment. And the first step is knowledge, book knowledge. You have to have, you know, you have to have a, a, a good understanding of just very, very basic principles. That, and you can only get that through book knowledge and science and things like that. And this step has to come first because we can't begin working with our higher or spiritual self and mind because the, the body-mind, the brain, does the processing. So 
the soul mind can't teach you higher truths if you don't have the proper frame of reference to draw from. So that's, that's the first thing. And of course, you know, again, I didn't understand this until after I took the journey, what was really happening. So the universe made me read literally hundreds and hundreds of books uh, before I started really working with my higher self on a spiritual level. And it was important because they were using information from those books, from that knowledge base, to teach me higher truths. And so it's a very, knowledge is a very important part of the process. You, your, your higher self can't work with you unless you have that knowledge to draw from. So, so that's really important. And, and then the second part of the journey is working with your higher self and moving past the box that the mind builds for you and, and that reality that it creates. And, and then the third phase is integration, In, integrating your, you know, your, you could say your left hemisphere and your right hemisphere if you wanted, uh, but it's really more about integrating your, your material self with your spiritual self, and then so that third level becomes the experience that you get from doing that. You, you learn how much power you really have, what you are really capable of. You get your identity back, your true identity back, and your power. And we're, we're so far removed from what, what real reality is that you can't just lay it all out there because you would think it was crazy, you know? Very much like, you know, your witch friend and my psychic friend, we thought they were crazy. It, it takes time. The mind really does need time to grow and unfold and uh, learn to accept things that are strange and different and... Um, so, so really, the first purpose of the study guide is I want people to experience the journey the way I did because it's not abrasive. You can go at your own pace, but it unfolds the right way, and it worked, right? I mean, it worked. So, so, I, so I know that it works. Um, but the other thing, too, is that after the knowledge part, you know, the reading, the reading, uh, working, working with the higher self um, it teaches you how to go back over all of that knowledge and know how much of it was actually knowledge, right? Were they even factual facts? That's the first thing. So it kind of helps you cut through that. And when I was able to do that, there were, I realized that there were sources of knowledge in the world that just are not being given enough credit. They're, they're profound in every way. And so, um, you know, each chapter has, uh, as the journey progresses, these authors and their work are covered in each chapter. So there's no bibliography. You actually take the journey very similar to the way it was done for me. So you can go to their work. I, I, I cover their work in each chapter um, because they each have a part of the sacred science and, and a really important part. So if you just go a, a little bit at a time, it unfolds the right way. And um, there's even a, a journal page at the end of every chapter so that people can record how they're responding to the, to the strange information, because it may seem very, very strange at first, but I have a feeling that when they go back later and read what they wrote, they'll be surprised. They'll be able to actually track their own growth, and I, I think that would be really great. I think it's interesting to, to mention, and this is a quick parenthesis, how when we grow up, at least in my case, from a very early, from very early age, questioning in school teachers, the priests, and 
they could never give me the answers that I wanted. I've said this on many of the shows, and I have nothing against uh, any religion. But the fact that when you ask a question, you're never allowed to, to ask more, and you're told, no, this is what the book says, and this is what you need to, to follow. That's when I really started questioning that perhaps there was some knowledge out there that they don't want to let out, or they don't want people to really get out of their box and start questioning and growing and ascending. So when I created this show and I interviewed so many great people around the world, it's just a plethora of information that has opened our eyes and minds. And, and every time I do a show, I come out with more knowledge. And the more knowledge I get, the more questions I get. As a matter of fact, last week, it was our, our one year anniversary a couple of weeks ago. And now I feel I'm more confounded, I'm more confused with the world than when I started. And as, as they say, sometimes ignorance is bliss because you have no idea what is outside. And unfortunately, the majority, in my opinion, of the population lives in that paradigm. And when you try to talk to them about these subjects, they look at you as if you're a nut. Have you encountered this? And, and thankfully, you have a family that has embraced what you're trying to accomplish. But colleagues in, in, in your profession, friends, what has been your, your experience when you presented this information to them, if you have? Well, um, it is true. A, a lot of people are living in a mental cave, uh, and they, they like it for reasons that baffle me, if you want the truth. Um, but, I, you know, children are very perceptive. So when I was really young and my parents, I, I was, I think, eight the first time my parents told me about the pyramids. And I remember my mother telling me that there were temples in Egypt that were very, very old, that had pictures of what looked like an Apache helicopter and UFOs carved into it. And uh, there's actually a, a book that is covered in, in my book that people can go to to find those images. They do exist. But, but it, beca- it became really obvious that the way my parents were telling me these things, it was obvious that they were giving me secrets, that it wasn't the kind of thing that you can talk about with just anyone. So, so as I learned that very young as a child, but it always surprised me when I got older that there, there was just there's just this great huge world. It's right it's right behind us, and nobody wants to turn around and take a look at it. And if you try, you get slapped on the hand, you get admonished. Um, in the uh, in the in the intellectual world, you get your grants pulled, right? So it, it is being hidden. It's absolutely being hidden. And I've, I've never really found anyone in my entire lifetime besides my own family that I can talk about these things with in, in a serious way. In fact, I remember once when I was 18, I was working for a computer company and I shared an office with three other people. And uh, this, this one woman that I shared an office with, her husband had borrowed a book I had and it was The Watchers by Raymond Fowler. And and we started talking about aliens a little bit, and this fellow in the office overheard the conversation. And when she left, he looked at me and he said, do you believe in aliens? And I looked at him, and he was laughing at me. He thought I was, I was the stupidest person he ever saw in his life all of a sudden. And I looked at him and I said, well, yeah, I believe in aliens. And he just laughed, and I looked at him and, I, and he said, well, he said to me, have you ever seen one? And I haven't, of course, there are people who have, but I personally have not, which I'm actually thankful for on some level. Um, and I said, no, I, I've, I've never seen one. And then I waited a minute, and I looked at him, and I said, do you believe in God? 
oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He just went on and on about how he really believed in God. And I said, oh. I said, well, have you ever seen him? <laughs> and uh, I mean, you know, so, yeah, people, you know, they've, it's, it's in, in a way, it's not really people's fault because it's, it's what's being hidden that's making it so difficult to, for, for people to really understand that these things are real and they're, they're important, but, but these secrets are, are powerful, and they, they convey that power to those who know them. And, 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 that power, and here's the issue, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but that, that, what you just said about the person who was laughing at you reading that book, I have no idea how many times that happened to me, and that made me stop talking about this because the, the ridicule factor really made me withdraw for years until the story I, I share with you and the audience, what happened to me late last year. But first generation, second generation, I'm first generation, open-minded, awakened, coming from a conservative family that, that, that only believes in certain things that they grew up with. You're very lucky that your parents were more awakened and open-minded. What made them be open-minded when they had the same type of family that I had? Um, they just, you know, they, they both came from larger families. You know, people had larger families back then, four or five kids. Yes. And they were just both the black sheep. They rebelled in every way possible against their situation. Uh, my father, um, you know, he went to parochial school growing up. His sister was a nun for a while. Uh, all of All of his all of my cousins went to parochial school, and he he was a very very artistic person, and he wanted to be a musician. Mm-hmm. And where where does that you know in, in choir you know you know where does that fit in? And he just really rebelled. And with my mother, it was the same thing. It was a very very controlling father. You know, he was the king of his castle. Everybody did what he said. And I think in a way, I think they were just more compassionate and awake than their siblings, because both of those lifestyles had, it may have been subtle, but there was a hint of cruelty in both of them, and, and they wanted to make sure they didn't pass that on. So I, I did, I got very, very, very lucky, uh, but I have to say, though, that my father, who completely renounced Catholicism then, uh, is a reborn Christian now, and uh, the first night that you and I spoke, and we had a very, very long conversation, ten minutes after I hung up with you, my father called me, and he asked me about the book, and, you know, I had never told him what it was about, because he is a reborn Christian. And uh, normally he'll start quoting scripture, and I just let him go on and on. And this particular evening, I, I couldn't do it anymore. I just, I, I finally told him, you know, he asked me what made me write the book, and I told him I had met with this psychic, and right away, oh, you're, oh, that's witchcraft, you're going to go to hell. And, and uh, you know, I was, really I was trying not to laugh at him, because I love him, uh, you know, and uh, and he, he he's with a non-denominational church now, so he's been traveling to China and other countries and building churches, and he also learned how to perform the laying on of hands, which I think is great. And he's an honest man, you know, he, he wouldn't lie about something like that. Um, but, but what you, you know, just said about the, the man who was mocking you, it's so hypocritical. And I have to say... It was a positive thing, I, I have to tell you, that, that your parents probably, you know, made you grow up with, with that, you know, sets of morals and foundations. And the same thing happened to me. Fortunately, when I was 15, 16, 17, they stopped really, I don't want to use the word pushing, but they more or less let 
the kids. So we were five, five brothers, and they let us just do whatever you think is right. We have established some morality. Uh, you know, I think it was Arthur C. Clarke that said religion hijacked morality, and I strongly believe that's the case, that you don't need religion in order to have morality. But at least that was the morality that they knew. And they, they instilled that in on all of us, and we became citizens, productive citizens. But what your father is doing now, how did he renounce one religion and then he's now with the other, out of curiosity? Yeah, I don't really know. I think that, he, you know, he told me once that one of the reasons that he, he really had such a, a chip on his shoulder about Catholicism is that they don't want you to read it for yourself. And that really always bothered him. And when we started having this conversation, uh, you know, he was, he was quoting scripture at me, and pretty soon I was finishing the scriptures. I read the book. I know what it says. And um, I, finally I just said, you know, I know what those scriptures mean, but do you? And he said, oh, well, it means this, that, and the other. And I said, yes, but did you come to that conclusion on your own? Or did someone tell you that's what it means? And that's when we really could have a conversation after that. That's when we could really actually have, you know, a grown-up conversation about um, what I was doing and what he was doing. And, um, you know, he, he, the problem with religion is that religion convinces everyone that someone else is going to save you. The power lies somewhere else. And I use that as an example with my father, because, he, you know, he's talking about how all these angels are standing around waiting for us to tell them what to do. And, and I, I agree with that. You can find that in occult literature. That's not uh, necessarily a religious concept. Uh, but then I said to him, well, look, the universe, the creative universe works through us. It comes through us or it doesn't come at all. And he's still on that, the Savior lies outside of me train. And so I said to him, listen, why, why did you have to put your hands on that boy to heal him? If you could just go tell God to do it for you, why, why did you have to touch him? And I told him, I said, because that's how it works. It, the universe works through us. You know, it's not an external source. You know, it comes through us if we allow it to. And if we don't, we find ourselves in the situation that we're kind of in now. And, um, you know, the last report that Cliff High put out isn't really great. So, yeah, in a way, religion has been helpful, because the Ten Commandments are important. You know, thou shalt not kill and steal. Those are valid, valid teachings. But there's just so much more to it that we didn't learn, and we are in self-destruct mode because of it. So I personally believe that uh, we've reached a point where religion, because it is a half-truth, is a defunct institution. It, it can't teach people a truth it doesn't know or understand or protects because it has its own masters. Well, and at least in my experience, if you asked a question and they did not know the answer, they would say, because that's the way God's, God wants it. And you have to just stay with it. And I was never satisfied with the answer. And uh, what I was saying about the person who was mocking you, how, how hypocritical it is for some people to yeah. laugh at the fact that you're trying to learn something new and the probabilities, the Drake equation and all the, the numbers that we could come out with that the probabilities of extraterrestrial life are more than, than if there, there's not extraterrestrial, possibility of extraterrestrial life. And then when you ask the person, have you seen 
your God, etc. And they right. just say, uh, it's almost as if you're offending them. They can't offend you. They can mock you. But when you respond back, it's always the same. They, they, they feel that you're, you're, you're uh, what's the word I want to use? Uh, subversive. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I, I have to say that when, when you rise above all of this really antiquated doctrine, when people behave that way, it's, you never take it personally because you were there once. You remember being the turnip on the truck, right? So you never take it personally. It's, it's them who take it personally. They're the ones that really get bent out of shape over it. But, you know, in this particular instance with this fellow, we, we were friends. We weren't just coworkers. And when I said that to him, the conversation really ended. And it wasn't because I offended him. It was because he really recognized for just that moment that he didn't have the answer he thought he had. Or, or that you had a point. That's, that's what I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know. So what exactly, and I know you describe sacred science, but for, for the, the person who doesn't have a scientific background with your book, is it easy to understand what sacred science is? You know, it's very, very, very simple to understand. And I think that has a lot to do with why it came to someone like me, because I'm not a scientific person. You know, I have a great analytical mind, and I, um, I'm also an empath, but I see the world through patterns. Uh, but, but scientifically, not so much. So it was really important. You know, I, I was able to understand it. And, you know, we, ha we live in a world now where um, we have this word. It's called uh, higher education. And I personally don't believe that higher education is really higher education. So, but there's an elitist kind of thing going on there. Uh, where the information has to be peer-reviewed. So you're going to need a dictionary to understand every third word so you can sound really smart. And at that level, that's great, because at that level, that's how people operate to communicate with each other. That's kind of the world that they live in. But that's a very small world. There are six, over six billion people on this planet, and the information isn't getting pushed down. And, and that's a problem. So it's very, 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 very easy to understand. Um, the sacred science is the literal laws of creation, but it's also more than that. When we understand how creation happens and the patterns involved, we are immediately forced to recognize that everything is connected to everything else. So we are creations, but we are also involved in the process of creation. So, so nothing is separate from anything else. And, and so a great deal of what we see going on in the outer world today is a reflection of who we are inside. So even at that level, we're connected to our outer reality. This connection always exists, and advanced scientific terms like fractal or hologram don't teach people how to understand their personal connection to the sacred science and to the laws of creation. But the ability to recognize patterns is a very, very simple way to understand it. So, for example... Um, I may have known the 50 people in my life who had to go out and buy a new refrigerator. And let's say they all bought one of three brands. And over time, this one particular brand just breaks down after the first six months. So having recognized that pattern, if you came to me and said, you know, Crystal, I need a new refrigerator, I would say, well, geez, no, don't buy this brand because the patterns indicate that there's a problem with it. Nothing scientific had to really happen there, right? Because... 
I can't tell you why it breaks down. I'm, I'm not an engineer. I don't know what's wrong with the part, if it's a manufacturing defect, if it's a design flaw. I can only tell you that that part con- continually breaks. But I can also tell you that when, when you understand the sacred science, you, you'll be able to look at that same kind of pattern and realize right away that the people who are producing this product know that it's inferior and they do it anyway. They still sell it. They still create it, which is, again, a reflection of the people behind the product. You see what I'm saying? Sure. So the inferior product is a reflection of the personalities and the disposition of the corporation and the people who built it. So when you learn the laws of creation, it's very easy to understand through patterns, but you immediately recognize your own connection to it because the outer world is always a reflection of our inner self. And that's, that's a really, really important thing to understand. So it is a science, but we are connected to it. And so it, it does take you on a very personal journey as well. In fact, there, there are four main components to creation. There's light, sound, and magnetic energy. Those are the first three. But the fourth element is actually us. So, and, you know, physicists know this because they've done these experiments where they realize that we are never just observers of reality. The moment we are part of that equation, it changes, right? So is it a, is it a light? Is it a, a particle or a beam? It's the moment that they actually step in to watch, it changes its behavior. So, it, I mean, it's been actually proven scientifically that we are not just observers. We are actively engaged in the process of creation. Um, so it was really, really important to me that anybody can understand it. Uh, you know, for example, if, if I went to a laborer in the fields, let's say, who had an eighth grade education, if I told him that his body and all material existence was created through harmonic codes, I may sound really smart, but he's not going to have any idea what I'm talking about. And so the message gets lost. I can't push it down to him. Right. And he, he has the right to know. He should know. Uh, but if I went to this man and I said, well, the sacred science of creation is, is, teaches you to understand that all life is a song. Because everyone understands music, his, his imagination can be engaged right away, and the learning process can continue. So uh, it, it's, it's very, very easy to understand. Because here's another example. Uh, you know, we just talked about sound or music. And in this case, it really is part of creation. It's not a metaphor. And because sound is, in fact, one-third of the sacred science, even sound can be weaponized and not just in terms of acoustic cannons being used for crowd control, okay? So as an example, uh, and this should be compared to some of the things that Judy Wood brought up in her interview on energy weapons being used on the Twin Towers, because just using the idea of music can help us really understand how these technologies work, because they all use the same uh, methods to function. It may be a different type of energy, but, but it's always the same process or pattern. So... In terms of the towers, it wasn't necessarily a sound frequency that was used, but in terms of sound being used as a similar weapon, we could think of how a singer shatters a glass, right? Mm-hmm. Only the glass is affected, not the wood or the concrete or even the singer themselves. And something very similar happened on 9-11 because the towers were brought down. The metal was affected, the concrete was affected, but there was paper everywhere. So it, that's that's why it's a double-edged sword, because the moment you know how everything was created, you immediately know how to destroy it or, or take control over it. 
and that's the problem. And that's actually that's already been done. And that's that's why I think it's so important that people really understand the sacred science and whether modification is also uh, it also uses one law principles, uh, which means that Native American rain dancing is a very valid concept. We could even look at the work of great inventors like Raymond Rice. Oh, well, hold on. Hold the the Reich machine for one second. We have to take a quick intermission, uh, Crystal. And just let me just one last thought that I was just thinking. And uh, it's it's Christmas Day when we are broadcasting this show. So to those around the world of the Christian faith, Merry Christmas. But I want to say something also about what you were saying about the... the, uh, music uh, and and the frequencies, etc. I received some information that in during before World War II, Goebbels, the the propaganda uh, person for the Nazi, the Nazis, really wanted the, the the international Philharmonics to change the tuning frequency from 432, which is the healing frequency, to 440 hertz, and. Also, because churches around the world use the tuning frequency of 432, some people claim that when they went to church and they heard the organs and the instruments, well, they didn't know that was the reason, but they felt that they were healed because they went to church, when in reality, it was because the frequency was tuned to 432, and they didn't want anyone else outside of church to use that frequency. Google that, 432 hertz to find out. Uh, We're here with Crystal Clark. How do people get in touch with your work? You can get the book from my website, and the website is www.thesoulsociety.com. So much more left to discuss with Crystal Clark. I'm so glad that you found me, Crystal. I'm so glad that I found you, and the world's going to be very happy with this show. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
Robert Morningsky, and you are listening to The Veritas Show.